Welcome at the Coalface. I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. Today I speak with Siri Kalsa. Siri's life has followed many unconventional paths. She was raised in a spiritual community in New Mexico, where she began a lifelong practice of yoga and meditation. Her family was in the tea business, where she started her professional life. She moved into politics as an aide to New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, campaigning for him, and later worked on Barack Obama's campaign, providing advice on South Asia. After Obama's victory, she worked in his administration in Afghanistan, She then started supporting a charity that improves livelihoods for crafts workers in Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. Her charity work later took her to Monaco, where she lives today. Really great that uh, Syria, really great to connect and really great that we're able to, to, to have this conversation. I'd really been uh, looking forward to it. Uh, also, with a bit of... Uh, uh, I'd say apprehension because you, you're, 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 you've such a, you have such a rich life. Uh, there's so many angles uh, to explore. Uh, and so I've, I've been, um, I've been wondering like what would be a good way to, to, to start this conversation. And um, although this is a podcast, which is audio only, uh, I can see you while we're recording this and uh, to, to, to add even more to that uh kind of tug of anxiety, what I can see in your background is one of the most famous pictures of uh, Barack <laughs> Obama, which may, 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 might be the, the, the right place to, to, to start. And maybe to, I, would, I would love if you could share a little bit um, about your, your, your journey into, into uh, politics and campaigning. It's like, uh, when did that urge start in you? And like, uh, yeah, what, what drew you to, to it? Great. Well, Philippe, um, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be on your podcast. And um, it's great to have a chance to connect with other GMappers in, uh, across the world. It's a really amazing network. So um, thanks for this opportunity. Um, yeah. yeah, politics. And, and, oh, and, and uh, actually, mm. we, should, we should say how we met, how we connected, yeah. which was very random because although <laughs> both of us tried to stay connected i had never come across you and you you reached out i think because you saw you saw this podcast we never touched actually yeah no absolutely i i was reading the gmap newsletter but i noticed this note about podcasts and i'm a i'm sort of a podcast fanatic and so when i saw that this was something that you were doing to help connect gmappers and knowing even from my own class what amazing stories people have and yeah. amazing lives people have led i thought you know how how great to to be doing this and i i um yeah i wrote to you and i said hey let me tell me more yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah great yeah so politics you know it's always been i can remember growing up i guess in the reagan era and my parents having the news on TV and, and noticing there was like a little R or a little D next to people's names. <laughs> and I remember even at six or seven years old asking, you know, what does that mean? What's that about? So I've kind of had this lifelong fascination with, with politics. I um, remember meeting Mayor Ed Koch when I was quite young uh, in New York and, you know, sort of had this, this interest in politics, I think, from a really young age. My life, my early life went in kind of different directions, but I returned to politics in the early 2000s when Bill Richardson, who is also a Fletcher alum, was elected governor of New Mexico where I was living. And he was someone that we had, you know, that my family had known. And New Mexico is a small place. Everybody kind of yeah. knows everybody. <laughs> and I, I was really very interested. In, and so I, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could volunteer in his new administration or maybe there was something there I could do. And so I just started volunteering originally with him in his office and uh, at the time with the lieutenant governor, who I think was our first female lieutenant governor at the time and doing some, and it was really an interesting time to like just jump into public service and, and state government, which was, you know, really, really very new to me because I had a business background before that. And, you know, and then ended up working with Governor Richardson for about three or four years. And that was a great experience 
just understanding the love that people have of public service and how important it is. And and obviously to to work closely with Governor Richardson, who is a master politician. You know, he he really uh, he had served in the Clinton administration and then had two successful terms as governor. And he really just, you know, he he really knew how to connect to people. He was really interested in solving problems. He, you know, just had had a really great way about him. And so I learned a lot from that. The way that I got to the to the this campaign poster, which I stole from from the <laughs> uh, from the Obama campaign headquarters, I had worked so after um, so Governor Richardson had decided to run for president in I guess it was two thousand and seven. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I had graduated. I did a second degree at Kennedy School, and I'd graduated and immediately joined his campaign. At the same time, Hillary Clinton was running, Barack Obama was running, I think John Edwards was the other candidate. And Bill Richardson, I think we went through the New Hampshire primary, mm-hmm. yeah. and he didn't perform well there and, and dropped out of the race shortly after. And so those of us who were working on his campaign had to sort of you know find other places. And Governor Richardson very quickly endorsed President Obama, then Senator Obama. And I was, I contacted someone on, on his team or someone who had, had been with Richardson, put me in touch with someone on the Obama team. And I was able to join a part of his foreign policy team, which was really interesting and was responsible for writing talking points for him for uh, around South Asia. That was, that mm. was particularly what I did. Can you maybe go back to your first contact with politics? Because you, you you were talking as as a as a as a young young person, um, watching with a bit of a mystery, uh, pe- people with a D and an R in front of them, and they, they, you you had this chance to then go and touch and feel the real thing with a little D in front. What was your first impression? Was it what you'd expected? Was it totally different? What was? Yeah, share a bit about these these first, yeah. first well, impressions. I think that. Probably, I I remember I joined the Young Democrats when I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and it was during President then President Clinton's first campaign. So I'm dating myself a bit here, but um, but that was the first campaign that I got involved in. Just we were volunteering. I met some really interesting people. As I said, I was living in New Mexico, and New Mexico is a really small state and big in, in geographically, but small in terms of, of people. I think at the time it was less than a million people. And the political community is small. The democratic community is very small. (laughs) I got to know people and, you know, everyone was very welcoming and was, you know, starting to do volunteer work, just getting involved in campaigns. And, and I loved it. You know, I just, I loved the idea of making an impact of, you know, kind of this, how power is used and, and uh, how, how people get power and how they influence people and what's important to people and how do you persuade them and, you know, public speaking and, you know, all of those things that are kind of yeah. in, involved in being a successful politician. And in New Mexico, it was kind of, a, you were able to look at it under a bit of a microscope because there wasn't a lot of distance, you know, <laughs> you could yeah. you could meet, you know, all of the people like right now, the two senators from New Mexico are people that I knew that I grew up with. And it was great to have that, that proximity. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and see it also up close. And also, B- Bill Richardson is, is a character that's really larger than life. So, so you must be one of the few privileged uh, pe- people to be able to see his outwards persona, but also see how he functioned behind closed door. How was that like, or was it one and the same person? Well, he was a, continues to be a, a larger than life figure, as you say, <laughs> um, yeah. really talented politician. I think that he, he truly loved that work. He really yeah. loved people. You know, there are people who get energy from being around people and there's people who get energy from being by themselves. <laughs> and I think people who are politicians are have to be people that really get energy from being in groups of people because you you have a schedule where you have like six breakfasts and then, and then you go to, <laughs> you know, two rallies and then you've got, you know, this this reception and this you know, and it's just, it can be really nonstop. And so you have to have an incredible amount of energy to do right. that and to show up for each event with a smile and, and happy to see people and say the same thing that you said 10 times already that day. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, um, 
I, you know, it's it's an amazing skill to be that kind yeah. of politician and to do that campaigning because the campaigning can really wear you down. And yeah. in New Mexico is a big state. And, you know, when we would campaign, we'd have to sometimes go on uh, RVs, you know, we take or yeah. even yeah. fly around the state. So, yeah, I mean, Richardson, I learned so much from him. He always was on top of everything. Like it, yeah, it was yeah. amazing. There are some times where you would think that, well, maybe he's forgotten about that little detail, or maybe I can just, you know, kind of push this little thing that he asked me to do that I didn't do under the rug. And he, and it would never happen. Like he, right. he had, yeah. he would, <laughs> he had this amazing um, memory and this really amazing ability. And, and when we would go places, you know, we'd go to this little town, like, you know, Truches or Las Cruces or these little <laughs> towns. And he would, he would see someone he'd like, Oh, Maria, how's your daughter? You know, did oh, well, she finish yeah. grad school? You know, and, or, you well, know, did your mom make yeah. those chicharrones for me or something like that? And, <laughs> and he, you know, every place we went, he knew the people, he knew their families, he remembered the details. And as President Clinton was also, I think, someone with this capability, they are able to make the people that they're speaking with feel really important and right, feel heard right. and feel that there's a relationship and and Richardson there was something he used a lot where he would give people nicknames and i think that was something also <laughs> that that uh, president bush used to do as well but he would get everyone had a nickname and it created this very special bond between that person <laughs> Richardson when you know no one else called them you know whatever it was and and they would remember that and so um yeah he was an amazingly talented politician but it must have been a little stressful for the staff if you remembered everything and you could never slip anything under the <laughs> carpet. So, so it sounds like a, almost a micromanager or a very demanding uh, boss. He was a very demanding boss, yes. Yeah. But I learned a lot and I think it made me a much better, um, you know, made me good at my job. You had to stay on your toes. You had to really perform. And yeah, I, it was a great experience. And so how was the transition to the Obama campaign then? Because it sounds like, you, you, I mean, it was quite a complete crew change for, for, for you, uh, but also your role sound, sounded quite different from what you were doing uh, for, 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 for Bill. Yeah. So for Richardson, basically, there were two of us that were on his foreign policy team. We were a small, <laughs> small yeah. shop. And then by that time, you know, the Obama campaign was quite filled out and he had very senior people who'd worked in the previous Clinton administration. And so, you know, we were sort of, you know, I was like levels and levels and levels down, but it was interesting work. And, and I still had a sense of being a part of things, worked with some people that, that went on to serve in his cabinet. And yeah, it was, it was a much different experience. Uh, basically, I had to get up at, you know, sort of five o'clock in the morning, look at all of the news that had happened overnight, anything regarding India, Afghanistan or Pakistan, and write up some talking points, uh, questions and answers if those things would come up for him and deliver them to a, a senior staff member by, you know, six in the morning every day. So that, that was quite different. And then uh, the last month of the campaign, uh, we were all kind of sent out to the field. So I went back to New Mexico and did field work. And, and that's where I stole my poster. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was the first time uh, New Mexico had voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in quite a while. So yeah. it was a very mm, big well, win for Obama in New yeah. Mexico. And how did you get into the, the the foreign policy aspect, focusing on on South Asia? Actually, yeah. Well, I had um, spent a lot of time in India, kind of growing up. I was raised in the Sikh tradition, um, although that's not where my my family comes from. But it was something kind of an adopted um, path. So I had spent a lot of time in visiting more mostly northern India, and you know, I think also at the time, you know, that was we're very much in the Afghan conflict and that was where things were happening so it was an interesting time to under try to understand that region and yeah. i had done a little work on looking at the india pakistan uh, yeah. conflict around kashmir and so it was just some you know it was kind of a natural a natural fit for me to then help richardson and then the obama team kind of decode that that's uh, the activities in this region and what what the united states position should be yeah, absolutely. I'd written during the the Richardson campaign, I'd written a lot of policy papers. So, mm -hmm. you know, that yeah. was kind of what things that you do in the early stages of campaign. So I had written policy papers for Richardson uh, regarding 
uh, gosh, it was a very long time ago. I'm not sure I remember all of them, but we did, you know, on most of the major foreign policy issues that were happening, we would, um, we would put together, you know, a, a sort of longer policy paper that we would publish and people could understand what the position of the candidate was on those things. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, build, build a sort of platform from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then as you were wrapping up, well, as, as Obama won, then, then, then you got an opportunity to, to actually go in, in, the, in the field. Can you share how that happened? Yeah. You know, I think once it became clear that Obama was going to win, I remember it was sort of October. So we were, you know, it's was, it was later, later days, yeah. but, um, but, you know, we're all feeling pretty confident and we're all sort of eyeing the West Wing thinking, okay, where's my office going to be? And, you know, it was clear that uh, really only the you know, key top level staff get, get those positions right away and everyone else has to wait. You know, sometimes it can be a year or something to go through a clearance process, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I was talking to someone on the campaign and they said, well, you know, the state department is doing something called a civilian surge in Afghanistan and they're looking for people to go over. And I thought, oh, well, this might be a really good chance to kind of understand better this area that I've been writing about and and, uh, working on for the past few years. And I thought, well, you know, if I could go, it was a one year assignment. I thought, well, if I can go over for a year and then I can come back and then I'll get, you know, even a better, you know, cushy policy job somewhere. So that was really what happened. And they put me in touch with someone at the State Department and they were doing what was called a a limited non-career hire. So I didn't go through the normal process of the uh, exam that yeah. normal uh, foreign policy officers yeah. go through. So I had um, a really quick uptake <laughs> um, and then the lengthy process of a uh, security clearance, uh, which, which did in the, in the end take quite a long time. And then um, after a few months, I was, I was on a plane to Afghanistan. Well, what was it? What were your marching orders? What were you? Were there any? Like, what was your job? <laughs> well, you know, it was kind of it was like it was, fix it. <laughs> yeah, fix it. Well, it was a little bit like you know, once you get there, they'll they'll figure it out, kind of thing. <laughs> right. So we, you know, we had a little bit of training before we went over. It was myself and just one other guy who were part of this first kind of. I think we were part of this first wave of the civilian uplift in in T- just two thousand. Two of us, yeah. There were two, wow. me okay. and another guy, in um, in this first. It was early two thousand nine. So we, you know, we'd gone through some training at the State Department. We we went through some briefings, and then yeah. And, we were, and, we were and when you talk about people. training, was it was it uh, j- just basic uh, kind of tactical behavior type thing, or was it actually how do you implement programs and all that? Like- it was a little of everything. So I, I believe we had a, sort of a week on Afghanistan history and and sort of just you know a brief on on Afghanistan, and then we had a week of what they call crash and bang, which was when you <laughs> okay. go to a conflict zone. So right, okay. Uh, we had some sounds defense- quite self explanatory. <laughs> yeah, we had some self some defensive driving. I think right. even some firearms training, that kind of oh, thing. Oh well, okay. Um, yeah, and we were sent over. I think when so when we arrived, we were given helmet. Body armor, and I remember fireproof gloves. Okay, right. <laughs> and at least you knew you knew how to use them. But yeah, more fortunately, I never had to use the fireproof gloves. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, so tell us, tell us about that because you, you you'd been reading and writing for years about the the, the region, and you you, got, you mentioned you'd lived in in India, but it was your, your first. I imagine your first time in Afghanistan. How, how was that like uh, arriving in the middle of? Um, military operations with uh, quite a lot of fog of war i imagine yeah. and uh, probably a mission that you had you had to shape as well uh, as you as you went yeah i think that i didn't really quite know what to expect i i would talk to, i think I, I talked to a few people beforehand who had been there and tried to get as much information as i could ahead of time but it was really it was really an unknown sort of thing and and i think that what ended up happening in that year, um, I was assigned to Bagram Air Base. I think we spent a week at the embassy kind of getting debriefed and meeting some people and then shipped out um, <laughs> to, to different places. And I went to Bagram, and, uh, you know, which, which was this kind of sprawling uh, Soviet-era military yeah. base, which in itself, I, I think there were, I want to say like 15,000 soldiers yeah, there. Like yeah. it was very, very, very big. And, and the runway was one of, I, I think they said 
qualified as like one of the busiest airports in the world because, um, you know, things constantly taking on and taking off. It was a a shock to some, (laughs) to some degree. You know, I think that I didn't obviously didn't know what to expect. I didn't have a lot of expectations ahead of time, but what I did learn during that time was a lot about the American military. Yeah. And that was something that I did not know much about. You know, I have to say when I arrived, if you asked me what the difference between a colonel and a sergeant was, I'm not yeah. sure I could explain. <laughs> um, but I learned that pretty quack- quickly. Um, I was given for the, the position I was hired, I actually had the equivalent rank of a lieutenant commander or lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, excuse me, a lieutenant mm-hmm. colonel. Yeah. So, you know, that that actually put me quite high in the in the hierarchy of the people that I was working with. So I was embedded with a battalion and I was supposed to be working alongside that battalion commander to help advise them on the work that they were doing that was really not related to combat. It was related to, you know, what was called nation building. So it was dealing with the local governments. It was putting in um, development projects. It was dealing with, you know, local warlords. So these were things that were not really part of the military mission. You know, these were, this was not like clearing and, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and holding this was, this was really a whole different mission. And that's why. They, I think they felt that civilians with some expertise in, in these areas could, could help. I think we, you know, I was trying to also work on the economic development side of it. So I, I eventually transferred to work more closely with the, um, in the region to do economic development related to the mining industry, particularly to, to advise them yeah. on, on how that could be built up for the, um, I think it was the eastern region that we were working Mm -hmm. on at the time but it was an amazing education in the american military just how it works how it functions as a machine i used to say that you know you couldn't you couldn't have a conversation with anyone unless it was in a powerpoint you know like they really (laughs) their minds and i I, this isn't criticism but their minds work like powerpoint (laughs) and everything had to be in, in powerpoint and you know and and it was a lot of the jargon and all of these things that were so new to me. And I, I had no idea. But, you know, everyone was very nice. And, um, you know, I think they looked at me a little bit like a fish out of water. But but I think, you know, it was was a good, really good experience. Because you, you came in under the label of civilian surge, which is a, a bit of a loaded expression after the, the military surge. It was, how was that perceived? Was it like... It was it was it perceived as um, I don't know like f- from a military perspective it's like okay the surge hasn't worked we're sending two civilians <laughs> it's like uh, w- yeah. well you know uh, it's it's obviously a bigger conversation about intervention yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and how to do that well and how we've maybe not done it so well in the past and I think Afghanistan is an is an example of that you know I, I think what happened was that the military side of it was although the Taliban continued to act and continued to be dangerous. And while I was at Bagram, we were bombed several times and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. people I know were killed. It was, it, it became, they call mission creep. You know, you, yeah. you start doing one thing and you're like, okay, well, now that there's new leaders in place, how do they know how to lead? How do they know how to create a, uh, a society, uh, you know, to, to have, you know, the, the governor that we worked with in the province you know, how is he going to succeed? How is he going to figure out what to do and, and make it work? And, and you know, there was a lot of money. Um, the U.S. Was, was sending, you know, through USAID and, and other organizations, a lot of money for infrastructure development and roads and schools and, and all of these things being built. And so it was, you know, it was chaotic in, in some ways um, without some kind of central focus and central planning to this um, because there was a rotation of military leaders and of civilian leaders of, you know, normally about one year cycles. And so everyone would kind of come in after one year and they would say, oh, well, whatever that guy did before, he didn't know what he was doing. I'm going to start over. I'm going to create this great school and that will be my one year accomplishment that I can point to and put on my CV. And so, 
Yeah. And they used to say, you know, it was sort of fighting the same war year after yeah, year yeah, and, and starting yeah. in the same place. So I think that was one of the the, the real problems that, that happened there. And maybe, maybe I can ask you, because you'd been you'd been on the policy advice side before you went in the field so so was it what you expected or how, how big of a gap was there uh between the discourse within o obama pre uh, pre election and, and maybe if if you kept plugged into it afterwards compared to actually what was really going on like yeah. was it two different spaceships or uh... well i think that what ended up happening was was you know a reach of ambition you know the the idea that afghanistan might transform its society its government its finances its infrastructure its legal systems you know these were these were tall orders and i think that really what afghanistan needed and and uh, you know i i think even at this point was a much simpler mission Um, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was really back to the basics and that, you know, and I became much more interested in sort of livelihoods because I think mm -hmm. that was really the key to peace. You know, yeah. people really just wanted to support their families. They wanted to be able to provide for them, to be able to have a safe place to live, to send their sons, maybe their daughters to school. And, and that was mostly what people cared about. And we were talking about, you know, judicial systems and these big infrastructure and, and these really big societal changes, which I think in the end became, became a, a real overreach. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and, sh and obviously there's a disconnect between, you know, between the field and, and the administration. I, you know, I think that that's sort of a, a natural thing that happens. And in ways that I could, I tried to, to communicate that, but I think we got, we got stuck there in some ways. I'd also just like to say that I know that many members of the GMAP community have connections to Afghanistan. Um, many students who um, are from Afghanistan or have lived or worked there as well, probably more recently than, than I did. And certainly what happened in August was horrific. And I know that Afghanistan now continues to be a country in crisis and there's a lot of suffering going on and you know I it's it's just a terrible situation you know I think it it does beg larger questions I think that the way the US left Afghanistan was not right and I think that as I said we really have to look at how we're doing international intervention and I don't know that anyone imagined that the Taliban would be back in control in 2021 and and here we are and so I just I just want to acknowledge the people who are really still there fighting this fight and trying to save their country. Thanks for saying that uh, Siri. I mean I'm aware of a a lot of effort going on by uh, the Fletcher community to to offer help right now. And you mentioned you 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 uh, you focused on livelihood development. C can you share a bit more about um, your your uh, especially your 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 turquoise mountain uh, project? I'd I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Sure. Well, yeah. After being um, doing this this work, where I was hoping to learn about Afghanistan, and and I think what I really learned about was was the U.S. military, which was certainly a valuable experience and and taught me a lot. I still didn't feel like I had understood Afghanistan and I, mm -hmm. I wasn't meeting Afghans on a regular basis. We, we worked in this kind of bubble and a friend of mine, Rory Stewart had started an organization called Turquoise Mountain, which was dedicated to reviving the art and architecture of Afghanistan through the traditional crafts. And at some point he, uh, he said, you know, why don't you come work for me? There was a woman there who was leaving and she, she said, you know, I'm leaving, you should take my job. And it kind of seemed like a natural fit. You know, it mm -hmm. seemed like a way for me to get this sort of more hands-on Afghan experience that I wanted. So I talked to the people at state and I said, you know, I've got this opportunity. And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. It's like, you know, we're all doing the same thing. And I think at that time, USAID was funding Turquoise Mountain to some degree. Right. So, you mm -hmm. know, it was kind of a, you know, a, a similar, we're all in the same kind of family thing. And so I, I made this transition from one day going, you know, 
kind of traveling in these car- these MRAP caravans <laughs> with body armor and helmets and all this kind of thing to the next day, you know, driving around in a Toyota Corolla around, you know, downtown Kabul. Outside so was, the wires. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it was it was an interesting transition. But I think when I went to Turquoise Mountain, they, you know, were basically they had an institute where they're training students in the tr- these traditional crafts. And I was trying to help them develop markets for these crafts outside of Afghanistan so that, you know, they could it could be a source of sustainable income, sustainable livelihoods. And in this job, I got to work with uh, Afghans every day and work with some really young, talented craftspeople in woodwork and jewelry, calligraphy, ceramics. I got to travel to see different places around the country that I hadn't been to before. And you know, and also be part a bit more part of this sort of expat community of <laughs> yeah. journalists and other, you know, other people there, which was, you know, very interesting um, as opposed to the kind of embassy life that, that yeah. I had had yeah. before. So it was, you know, very interesting. And I think when I look back at, at what has had an impact in Afghanistan, you know, I know that the work that Turquoise Mountain did and continues to do because it's still yeah. there is really very important and, and is, is having a, a real impact on lives there. I remember uh, one of the woodworkers that we worked with, he was uh, wanted to get married and he was saving for his, the dowry payment. And, you know, we, we had a big commission and, and he, you know, he, he, we paid him for his, for his work. And, and he's like, you know, only, you know, only three more payments and then I'll have all my money and for my dowry. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was very, um, and, and we worked with a lot of, you know, women who have gone on to, to be, to, to sell their jewelry and to sell their work, um, all over the world and, and to revive some crafts that because craft is something that has to be transferred person to person. If the people who have that talent and have that skill don't pass it on, it it dies with them. So Hmm. Turquoise Mountain was really able to preserve some of these crafts that I think probably would have been lost if, if it wasn't for them. So it's a, you know, it's a project that I think has had a real and hopefully a lasting impact. And it was able to also find a way to export its, its products internationally as well, which must have been really a really welcome source of, uh, source of income because I imagine the domestic market must have been quite, quite limited. Yeah, we did a lot. You know, we obviously we had a little shop and we we sold right. expats and I would, you know, kind of go around the embassies some days with like stuff in the back of the car and try <laughs> right. and try and sell it. Um but we did yeah, we got some good big commissions. Um Turquoise Mountain, you know, was a well-connected um organization and so there were patrons who kind of right. helped facilitate that. We worked with some some designers, uh, a jewelry designer called Pippa Small, a an interior designer called Guy Oliver people who who would then bring the Afghan work into their own um, repertoire and to their own clients and and you know and larger commissions from that so and and turquoise mountain has continued to expand to do similar work in other countries including um, Myanmar and Jordan and uh, Saudi Arabia the latter uh, which you went to how, how was that like starting in 2015 um, I went to Saudi Arabia with the Turquoise Mountain Foundation again to to help get that project established in Saudi Arabia and working with um, local artisans there, mostly female artisans, and have spent um, quite a lot of time there through 2020 working with the artisan community with the goal of helping women particularly to create their livelihoods and, and, and gain economic independence through the craft trade. So um, it was a really interesting time to be in Saudi Arabia, to watch the country evolve as it has. Obviously, there's still a lot of challenges there, but there has been tremendous progress, especially for women, women in the workforce, women just, you know, for young women, for their education, for their you know, sense of identity and and place in the community has been really fascinating. Right. So uh, after your time at Turquoise Mountain, so so what what did you do? What what came <laughs> next after that? This must must have been 
must yeah. have been quite a tr- transformative period for, for you. I can echo having having spent some 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 years in very difficult uh, places in Iraq and Saudi. It's so intense every day. That the 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 intensity of the relationships, the impact that you can see, the the highs and the lows are pretty extreme. Yeah. So to to move on from that, I, I imagine this is it must have been it was difficult for 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 me uh, talking to you from from uh from the the kind of perfectly polished uh, city of singapore that i'm sitting in <laughs> yeah well i had been in afghanistan i think almost three years and um a friend of mine had gone to a a french language immersion program in the south of france and he had posted mm. something about it i'm like oh that looks really nice maybe i'll do that this summer and so I, I decided to take a month off of, um, you know, when it was July, it was quite hot in Kabul. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to the south of France. And uh, I signed up for this immersion program and just had the, a great time and, and was loving uh, the place that I was studying was close to Nice. And it was the first time I'd been in the south of France and just fell in love with it. And very randomly met some people who were running an organization, a uh, a charity here of Prince Albert uh, oh, of Monaco. Right. And we had a nice conversation and he said, you know, if you're ever looking to, uh, you know, to do some work, give us a call. And, and, you know, at that point I was, I had already been thinking about leaving Afghanistan and I thought, well, this, this might be a nice transition. <laughs> so, um, yeah, shortly after that, I, I got back in touch with them and I said, you know, how about that job? And, and so, um, they hired me to, to join what was called peace and sport which is an organization founded by a man named Joel Bouzou, who is a, a, um, a world-class, a uh, world champion in the modern pentathlon Whoa, and okay. five-time French world champion, I believe. <laughs> and he founded Peace and Sport under the patronage of Prince Albert II, the sovereign of Monaco, to do development projects to uh, using sport as a medium. So it was not the purpose to grow sport, but rather use the qualities of sport to help whatever issues a community might be facing, whether it's gender equality issues, whether it's healthcare issues. So if they wanted to have, let's say, a vaccination program, you know, we would put on a a soccer match or something like that. So, and working with some of these uh, big sports federations in each country, um, they did a lot of work in Africa, really all over the world. So that was, you know, that was a, a big change for sure um, from, from Kabul to Monaco. Um, it's not, <laughs> I used to say there's not a direct flight. Um. <laughs> right. So, so just to understand that, the, the, it sounds very interesting. The, the purpose of this charity is, is, is to help address social issues by using sports events as, as a way to attract people so that you can then communicate and, and, and uh, carry out change through this, through this event. Is yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. I think, you know, sport has has an equalizing effect. Um, it, mm. It's something that crosses a lot of what could be natural barriers, um, whether it's race or class or any societal barriers. Sport can be quite effective in bringing people together. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we've yeah. seen that from the Olympics to, you know, your local, um, you know, your local teams. And so, yeah, it was really just using sport in lots of different ways to to help communities. And they have a, they're still working today. They have a big community of champions of peace. So well-known, well-known sports people who, you know, put their, um, their, their fame and their, their following yeah. behind certain issues as well. So yeah, it, you know, it was really quite an interesting opportunity for me. I was very new to the sports world <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I was trying to help them expand their networks and, and grow their reach in, in the work that I was doing with them at the time. After that, you stayed in Monaco. I stayed in Monaco because, <laughs> you know, Philippe, I have to tell you, I have got a nice view. <laughs> so look you- at the Mediterranean all day is not bad. <laughs> every, every, every time you talk about Monaco, you smile and there's this warmth coming out of you. It's cl- clearly a place very, very close to your heart. Well, you know, I've been here 10 years now. So wow. um, it's been, it has been a while and it, it does feel very much like home. And I have to say that I feel quite lucky to end up here. It was never, never an idea that I had. But once you're here, it's, it's very hard to leave. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> I've really enjoyed being here. Um, I 
I had a very brief stint as a bookshop owner uh, in Monaco, opening an English language (laughs) bookshop, which was a dream that I had always had. And that was something that I kind of went went off a bit on a whimsy and did. And it was great fun. It was not to no one's surprise, a, a huge financial success. <laughs> and so <laughs> I failed quickly, as, they, as, as people suggest, and, um, and, and sold it, in fact, and, right. and then moved on to, to some other consulting work that I, you know, that I sort of continue to do now. But, but, but it's great that you, you're able to do it, at least. Like to, to, yeah. for, for a period of time, I imagine it must have brought huge, a huge sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. And I, I'm not sure how many... I'm not sure how many English language bookshops there are in, in Monaco, actually. None. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, there, were, there was no competition. I think, you know, Amazon was obviously the competition. And even now, you know, I, I, I don't use a Kindle. I can't, I can't, I can't make myself use a Kindle. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm very sensitive to, uh, to real books and real bookshops. Um, so, no, I had actually had my first job in a bookshop when I was 11 years old. Um, I was quite anxious to to get going on my career. As you can see, I, I like to, I've had lots of different things that I've wanted to do in my life and <laughs> I was anxious to get started. So a friend of ours had a bookshop and I, I went up to her one day and said, you know, can I work here? And she kind of looked at me strangely, like <laughs> this is a child. And, and, and uh, but then she's like, well, okay, sure. And um, by New York labor laws, I was too young to be paid. So uh, she paid me in books, uh, which was interesting, <laughs> which was great. And I worked there for many years. And, you know, I guess in the back of my mind, I always thought I would I would have my own bookshop. And so <laughs> this was living out that dream a little bit. And it was oh, great. Wow. fun. No regrets at all. No regrets at all. <laughs> oh, wow, fantastic. And maybe I can ask you about your, your experience at, uh, at Harvard and, and uh, Harvard Kennedy School and at, 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 at Fletcher. I mean, these are two schools. Normally, it's either or, or one or the other. But but, but you ticked uh, <laughs> ticked both uh, boxes. Like, what what drew drew you to 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 them both? And and maybe what was it like? And and maybe if if there are a few inspirational people that that come to mind, I'd love to love to hear about that too. You know, I have to say, I think for both of them, the the reputations of the school were what drew me. Fletcher, you know, obviously because of my connection to Bill Richardson, I, I knew about and I love the idea of law and diplomacy. And, you know, I think at some point I was considering a political career. And, and I think that was also what drew me to the Kennedy School, um, because this is sort of where people go if, you know, if, if that's what you want to pursue. I, you know, GMAP was a great experience and, and our class was very close. And I think that um, we, quite sadly, within very close to the time that we finished our, our year, there were some very tragic events related to our class. We lost, within a year or two, I think three class members passed yeah. away wow. Um, wow. in various ways, and, and the wife of another class member. And also during the class, um, one of our class members was involved in a terrorist bombing and lost their partner in that. And wow. so we, we were a small group of people and, and we were, um, I think, brought closer together through these tragedies and through losing these members of our class. And I, I think the, the people that I met in GMAP were very, very similar to the people that I met in the Kennedy School, where everyone yeah, was yeah. really of a very high caliber, had amazing careers, were doing lots of interesting things in there and and incredibly international and yeah, and yeah. that really is something i've loved and and i've always have been a bit of an internationalist so i think that really the idea of of going to the kennedy school was to have a sort of deeper policy understanding a deeper policy education and there i was I was able to study with Joseph Nye and Ash oh, wow. Carter yeah. and yeah. Um, Samantha Power. And right. uh, so, you know, it was, you get all the big names <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they're very accessible and it sort of all goes by in a flash, even though, you know, you have the, the difference of GMAP where you're doing it from a distance, um, the Kennedy school, you're, you're there every day. But it still went by very quickly. And, uh, you know, I think the first the first part of the year, I was just trying to keep my head above water. And <laughs> by the second part, you're always you're already thinking, oh, my God, it's over. And what am I going to do next? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'd, I'd like to also ask you because you, you, when we when we uh, spoke last, you mentioned to me that you've been a, a lifelong yoga and meditation practitioner, and I'd love to ask you a bit about that because, of course, now everyone's talking about meditation, <laughs> and I, I'm even dabbling in it. So I had I had actually had an interest in it in relaxation and even in hypnosis actually as a, mm. as a teenager, but but kind of left it. Uh, I even became a certified hypnotherapist wow. with a, the American American trainer who was who was training uh, classes in in, in Switzerland. Um, but I left that kind of aside for for most of my uh, life until now. Uh, but but I, I'd love to I'd love to ask you like, what would you like budding practitioners like 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 me uh, to know? Because I initially approached mindfulness as a as a tool like. I want to be more effective, you know, but as, as I do it more and more, it, it, it's, it's actually opening me up to quite complicated questions. Mm. <laughs> like, why do I want to be more effective? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, 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 and if mindfulness is about being like, then who am I? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that from, from, a, from, a, from the perspective of a, somebody who knows this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are questions that that we all come to at some point and I think obviously covid is is making us face um things in our lives in in much different ways than we were thinking of before and certainly our mortality and our purpose and uh yes, I you know, I I was kind of let's say uh, came from a background of Uh, a bit in the hippie culture <laughs> and and took on joined a spiritual community um at the age of 15 where i began practicing yoga and meditation and and being vegetarian and and so it has been very much part of my life and i think at that point you know having a daily practice of of meditation and yoga helped me as a teenager you know i was a teenager who had a lot of angst and a lot of you know just general anxiety and i found that getting up early in the morning and clearing your mind and chanting and you know doing some yoga and breathing really made a big difference you know i didn't think about it i just realized that i felt better and yeah, yeah. i i didn't have quite all of the the anxiety <laughs> that i was going yeah. through before and so it's been a practice that i've i've kept up and and i have more or less meditated every day since then And it, you know, I, I think, as you say, it's a tool, you know, it, we all are facing, I think, similar challenges in our life. And, and a lot of it has to do with how do we handle stress? How do we handle fear or pain or adversity? And I think that through meditation and a regular practice of meditation, it's, you know, as, as, others have said it, it's sort of like building a muscle in a way and, mm -hmm. and you yeah. can can have a, a resilience to facing some of these things and rather than your first reaction you yeah. you have a choice <laughs> you know yeah. you can just have that little bit of buffer between yeah. how so, you sounds very much like steve covey uh, <laughs> steve covey's insight between stimulus and response yeah yeah absolutely and Because, you know, I think we are people of reaction, right? You know, and mm -hmm. but in the end, that's all we can really control. You can't control the other people. That's what I feel that my practice has given me and and perhaps a bit more of a, you know, a bit a bit more of a calm, a bit more of a an ability to kind of step back and see the bigger picture. And and I think the bigger thing, too, is just compassion, you know, and, yeah. and how important compassion is for yourself and and for others and to use compassion as a as a lens to to see the world um and and see other people and i think you know that that helps me feel better about the world and, and about what's going on um i think that it's yeah it, it's it's been something quite important for me does it Does it necessarily, you know, you, you mentioned you're, you're dealing with bigger questions now. And, and I think that these are things that, that we all, perhaps those of us who are now in kind of middle age, um, <laughs> you know, we, we're a little bit more of like, and, and I, again, going back to COVID, I think we've all 
had this chance to kind of step back and, and say, wait, why, why, was I, why was I on an airplane, you know, every week <laughs> yeah. for the last two years and re-examine things? And, and I think this is a natural state. And I don't know that it's necessarily about coming to a conclusion or coming to a, you know, uh, necessarily a sense of clarity. I think that it's good to be clear about your, your values and, and what you hold dear. But I think the exploration and the asking of questions is is a it's a lifelong process. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Great. Thank, thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I've, I've really I've really enjoyed our conversation, uh, Siri. I, I wanted to ask you if there's any anything else you wanted to to add or to share, actually. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this as well. I hope I hope it's been my I know that my my career and experience has been a bit um, diverse and so it can be be hard to put in a capsule of of one conversation but yeah I you know I I have a lot of um, enthusiasm for podcasting. I think it's a great way to communicate and I'm I'm really pleased that you're doing this and I I hope you continue to have really great conversations. And uh you know I I was we We talked about maybe uh, trying to bring, you know, Monaco is yes. is a um, is the second smallest country in the world after. Uh, <laughs> after is it San Marino? Vatican, Which, Vatican oh, City. Vatican. All right. Okay. Yeah, but it's quite nice, and and we we do have um, you know, as I said, a, a nice view on the sea. So perhaps we can bring a future GMAP residency or or some people Indeed. down here. Um, Indeed. <laughs> I, I, I think it's it's probably been a little bit forgotten uh, as, a, as a country from a GMAP residency perspective. But yeah. there's lots of very, very interesting people uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. despite the size. Yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting place and and I do have a sort of secret ambition to to get involved in um, in Monaco diplomacy and perhaps right. to help support the state here at some, you know, in whatever way I can in my, my sort of adopted country now. And, you know, I think it would be lovely to bring people down here. It, it, it is very international. We're, you know, just kind of on the Italian border, obviously the French border. Monaco is a country that does have a seat at the UN. It does have a history of neutrality and, and a very multinational residency um so it's it's a really unique place and uh i'd love to uh you know to share it with with the g mappers so if anyone is ever in the area <laughs> by all means uh do get in touch and uh yeah it would be it would be great but um i just want to congratulate you on on the podcast at the coal face i think it's really fun and and a great way to connect the gmap community because i think there are extraordinary people and extraordinary stories and it's great to be able to share them Yeah, th thanks, uh, Siri. And it's, it's true that there's many pockets of GMAP that are not have not connected yet. So even though our respective networks are, are quite quite wide, they don't overlap uh, actually. So so it's, it's it's great that we're able to to do that. And we also uh, talked about the idea of co-hosting a few episodes with uh, some members of your class, which I think would do, would really add a great uh, a great dimension to that uh, as, as well. So I'm really really excited about that uh, that additional project. Yeah, absolutely. We have in the GMAP 2004 class some really people doing some some really interesting things, and um, I, I think your, hopefully your audience would be really interested to know more about them. So you know, hopefully we can get some of them involved. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out. Mm -hmm.